Hello and welcome to Centuries and Saints. This is Scott Matson. Thank you for tuning in to this episode where I will be replaying a teaching that I gave at Applegate Christian Fellowship in Southern Oregon a few years ago on Galatians 4. This is kind of the follow-up to our previous episode where I replayed a teaching that I had given from Galatians 3. So I pray this episode is a blessing to you and be on the lookout because once this episode is posted, we're going to be moving into season two of the podcast, beginning a systematic theology look at the attributes of God. I'm really excited for that. So stay tuned to the podcast for these exciting things coming up. Again, I pray this message is a blessing to you. Well, welcome back. It's cool. Time to go. Uh, So we left off, I finished Galatians 3, verse 22. So we left off, uh, we have a few more verses to go, and I did it on purpose because these last few verses in Galatians 3 uh, tie in with the theme that Paul's talking about in chapter 4. So let's get into it. I'm going to read the rest of Galatians 3, verses 23 through 29, and Paul closes out this part, this chapter here. Uh, by reminding the churches in Galatia here of their status before God the Father in Christ, that of sons and daughters. And here Paul gets into this whole concept of identity and sonship that we have in Christ. So Galatians 3.23, Paul says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus." And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. In these verses here, and on into chapter 4, Paul is using very common imagery uh, from his day, back in the ancient Near East, and that was of sonship and slavery in the homes that they had there in society. And so just super briefly, what would happen is that if a parent or a family had you know, an heir, a child, a son, or whatever, who was at some point going to uh, receive the inheritance. That child, while they were still young, would be sort of guarded and instructed and kept in check by tutors, by instructors, until they reached full maturity and could then uh, legally receive the full rights of sonship and inheritance. So it's kind of like, you know, when you hear things about you know, England a few hundred years ago had a king who was like eight years old. Well, no eight-year-old is going to actually probably be an effective king, the possible exception of Josiah in the scriptures. But, you know, so they'd be kept, guarded, sort of trained and raised up until they were at the point of maturity they could take over. And so that's the imagery uh, in the background that Paul's drawing on for this next part of his thought here. And it's really interesting what Paul does. And Paul gives here the purpose of the law. We were kept in custody under the law before faith came. Uh, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. 
So God the Father gives the law, again, as we saw last, last session, not to impart life, but to be our tutor, our instructor, to keep us within boundaries until, as Paul says, the fullness of time came and God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who were under the law. And so Paul is using the imagery there uh, that the law is like that tutor which keeps a child uh, protected from outsiders, provides discipline, and keeps the person, again, under authority and in subjection until they've reached the place where they then are given the full rights of sonship. Now that Christ has come and the gospel has been made manifest, the law has served its function. Paul says in verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So, guys, the time has come. The tutor has done its job. We've been brought up. Now faith has come. God has sent his son. The gospel has been fully revealed. And now we have received the full rights of sonship and inheritance in God the Father. We are now sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So follow Paul's thought here. I can almost hear him in his mind as he's writing this. This, this is not scripture, but this is just me speculating. I can hear in Paul's mind here, okay, I already told you, what are you doing? You've been justified by faith. You can't be justified by the law, so what are you doing? Why are you turning from Christ? I can just, you know, feel him saying the same thing. Another example, you've been brought to full sonship and given the full rights of inheritance, and now you're sons and daughters of God by faith in Christ. Why do you want to stop being full legal sons and go back to being a little child under a tutor? It makes no sense. I know for me, I, I'm 34 years old. I don't want to go back to third grade. You know, it, it would just be silly. It'd be weird, too. I'd be the, the biggest kid in class and probably older than the teacher, but, you know. Um, what are you doing? Why do you want to do that? You're, I, I just see Paul being like, what in the world are you guys thinking, you know? And so, again, against that backdrop, that's what Paul's doing here. And so in verses 20, I already read that one, uh, 28 and 29, Paul then says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And again, remembering that these people, the Galatian believers, are being tempted uh, by this group of people coming in trying to introduce law-keeping to faith, Paul makes the point here in verse 28, there isn't Jew or Greek or Gentile. In other words, in Christ, as far as how we are saved, how we are justified by God the Father, there isn't Jew or Gentile, male or female. Now, Paul's not making the point that there's literally no such thing as gender anymore. That's something in our modern society that's happening, and you guys have probably seen the news on that. I won't go into that. That's not the point Paul's making. But in context in relation to how are sinful people made righteous before God, there isn't Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, and those were all very important uh, social distinctions back in this day. You know, as you guys probably know, ancient culture, uh, women didn't have the rights men had, not even close. You know, there were 
lots within the Roman Empire, millions of slaves, and then people that owned them who were higher up the social ladder. Paul says, okay, before God in Christ, none of that matters. You know, we're all saved the same way, by faith in Christ. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, rich, poor, doesn't matter. It's only one way, and that's through Christ. And so Paul closes out, well, this part of chapter 3 here, by making that point. And so in regards to salvation, uh, the spiritual benefits that are ours in Christ have been given to all of us as believers, regardless of our ethnicity, social standing, and gender, and every other distinction that we could think of. Uh, Back in these days, the way that this would apply to us in our day, uh, you know, whether you're, I don't know, Lutheran or Presbyterian, uh, Calvary Chapel, Baptist, Republican, Democrat, if you're in Christ, you're in Christ. That's it. That's the good news. The gospel is good news. And so in the ancient day here, as an inheritance was passed from a father to a son legally, so the inheritance from God the Father has been given to us in Christ, his one and only son. We are counted in him. We are in Christ, as Paul makes the point. And thus, all those benefits of sonship and inheritance have been passed to us to you and to me, every one of us, no matter where we come from or, you know, what gender we are, those things have all been given to us by the grace of God. And so now we reach chapter four, finally. Uh, After an hour and a half, we made it. And uh, again, Paul continues this thought here. Uh, Chapter four, I just want to keep just running right through this. Paul says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child... He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So again, that goes back to the imagery we were just talking about at the end of chapter 3. Paul talks about that children, they aren't given the full rights of sonship in the inheritance until they grow up under a tutor. And so Paul mentions that in verse 2. Now, why does Paul say that a child, even though he's an heir, a legal heir, does not differ in any way from a slave, even though he's the owner of everything? Again, because a child doesn't get to enjoy all the benefits of the full inheritance and the legal rights of sonship until he's grown up. So functionally, a child and a slave are kind of the same. And so again, Paul says, look, you've grown up into Christ. Maturity has come. The gospel's been made manifest. Don't try and go back and become a slave. Don't go back and try and become a little child again who needs to be under these tutors. You've been freed from that. Verse four, and this is so, man, I love verse four. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
same thing. Paul continues this imagery of sonship and, and the structures legally of his day. The time has come. The faith's been revealed. Christ has come. The gospel has been made fully manifest. Now you, Galatians, and you, mountain toppers, are sons of God through faith in Christ. And because we are sons, God has sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts. We have the, the legal right to call God our Father, to call God Abba, Father. You know, it's interesting, uh, when you read scripture, the only person who ever did that was Jesus. And he would say, Father. You know, and now in the gospel... We, who in and of ourselves have no right to call God our Father, we do have the actual right to call God our Father because we're in Jesus, because he's given us that right through the gospel. So you see how Paul is relating this practical legal structure of his day to what God has done for us in Christ. It's an amazing thing. It's a declaration that God has made that you are righteous, God accounted it to Abraham as righteousness. God declared him to be righteous. You know, it's a declaration God has made. And the good news, as you guys know, is God is the judge. And if the judge says that you're righteous or innocent, then you're what? Righteous and innocent. Even if you object, <laughs> let alone the other attorney. But if you're like, wait, no, I'm, I object. I'm not righteous. Well, the judge has spoken, so sit down, be quiet, and just accept his verdict, you know? And the verdict that God the Father has rendered to us in Christ is righteous. He's accounted us righteous. So, amazing. I love, love, love that. Book of Galatians, incredible. It's amazing. Okay, Paul then moves on, starting in verse 8, and he begins to transition to a new series of thoughts here. And this is where we begin to see Paul's pastoral heart, uh, his love for these people. This is a really beautiful thing. Paul says in verse 8, However, at that time, when you did not know God, speaking of before they heard the gospel and believed, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. And these are, you know, a lot of Gentile people here worshiping demons, false gods. And then Paul says in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now, interesting. So in these four verses here, eight through 11, Paul says, guys... Before the gospel came to you, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were enslaved to demons, to those that are not gods. You're worshiping these spirits that aren't gods. The gospel comes, you get saved, you reject all of that, you're standing firm in Christ. But now you're turning away from Christ the other way. Now you're trying to be super religious and be really, really good people who are keeping the law. Again, I, I just imagine Paul pulling out whatever hair he may have had and saying, what are you doing? What is wrong with you guys? I love you, but what in the world are you doing? Uh, you know, and he's saying, 
you were enslaved to these false gods before Christ came and redeemed you. Now that you're turning away from Christ and trying to place yourselves back under the law, in a sense, you're trying to put yourselves back in slavery again. Only this time, not to demons, but to the ordinances and the requirements of the law. And Paul says in verse 11, kind of a scary indictment. He says, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. And when we think about his laboring for them as an apostle, as a church planter, uh, for the apostle Paul to say, wow, I'm scared for you because I've preached the gospel. Maybe it was all for no reason. Maybe it was totally pointless. If I was somebody reading Paul's letter, that would really, really make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. That'd be very scary. Uh, contrasting the, Paul's letter to the Corinthians with this one to the Galatians, it's the legalism that really sets Paul off. He's, oh, he's, you know, the Corinthians, yes, there's rebuke. There's the sexual immorality, the drunkenness. But man, this, he is just in Galatians. It's the legalism that really sets Paul off. And we see that uh, here in chapter four. Paul is a pastor loving these people and rebuking them harshly because of his love for them. And then chapter 12, uh, Paul, he, this is really the meat of where you see Paul's heart of pastor, of his pastoral heart, pardon me, for these people. And it's really a beautiful thing. Uh, his heart comes through in the midst of his rebuke. Uh, he says here, verse 12, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. Now, I will admit these verses, that one is a little perplexing to me, trying to understand what Paul is saying. Uh, but one thing that I sort of came up with here, Paul, in the next few verses, he'll go on to describe the bodily illness that he has. That, uh, as we heard last night, Paul from history was a short little guy. Uh, ben has talked about how history tells us he had a, like a hooked nose, bandy legs, bald head. You know, not physically awesome. So Paul, in, a, in that sense, we'd say, oh, Paul's kind of weak. You know, plus he'd been beaten a lot and almost stoned to death and, you know, not the strongest guy, you know. And Paul says, you know, I beg of you, brothers, become as I am. I kind of like to think that Paul here is saying spiritually strong in Christ. And Paul says, because I've also become as you are. And I think, I don't know, maybe Paul's poking a little fun at them, saying, in my body, I'm pretty pathetic and I'm weak. Yeah, kind of like how you are spiritually. <laughs> so, you guys, spiritually, get back in line to Christ. Become what I am, strong in Christ. So, I can't prove that. That's kind of what I, I think maybe he's doing there. Uh, but then on into verse 13. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel or angelos, messenger of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so here, I, when I read this, I hear 
the voice of, of a heartbroken father, in a sense. We know from other places in Scripture, Paul calls Timothy his true son in the faith. Uh, we don't know if Paul ever had any children of his own, but Paul seems to look at the men that he raises up to be church leaders and all the people in the different churches that he plants. He's, he seems to think of them as his spiritual children. And Paul says, look, when I came to you, you received me. You saw my bodily weakness and my condition. You didn't despise me or loathe me. Uh, in a culture where physical beauty was very, very important, nothing like today, thankfully. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, Paul says, look, you guys received me. You, you didn't reject me for any of this. And Paul even says, I believe, if possible, you would have taken your own eyes out to give them to me, which is why a lot of people think Paul's thorn in the flesh was an eye problem. And, you know, where is this love that you had for me? What happened? What's going on? Now you're despising me. You're turning away from the things I've taught you. You know, you're believing the lies these people are telling you about me. Like, what's going on? And then Paul says, verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, again, just preaching the gospel that we're justified by faith in Christ alone. You know, he's making this impassioned appeal. And I believe what Paul, again, is saying here is, I'm the one who truly loves you. I'm telling you the truth. You may not like me for it. Uh, you know, you may despise me, but this is the truth. And am I now your enemy because I'm telling you what's truthful? And I kind of hear in this as well, uh, sort of the same tone you see when you read the Old Testament prophets, like Jeremiah especially, the weeping prophet who prophesied for 40 years and he told the people the truth. He faithfully proclaimed God's message to Israel. And what was the response? He was beaten up, thrown in a well, uh, imprisoned. You know, he's called the weeping prophet for a reason. And it's like, I can just see Jeremiah, you know, really? This is the word of God I'm giving you. I'm a prophet. And look how you're treating me, you know? And then these false prophets that come to you to lead you away from God and to worship false gods and to think that all this sin is okay, you love them. And Paul's doing the same thing here. I've preached to you the truth of the gospel and you're treating me like an enemy. These guys are coming in after me and telling you, you have to go through this men, this very painful ritual, and you have to do these things of the law in order to be saved. It's a complete lie and it will lead you completely away from Christ to be anathema, and you love them for it, you know? So I hear Paul kind of heartbroken here in the midst of his, uh, his again, righteous, loving frustration and anger. Uh, he's also, I think, kind of heartbroken here that this is happening to these precious people that he loves. So again, it's nice to read this and, and sort of see Paul's pastoral side come through, you know? I love that. So, uh, verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 17, Paul says, and I like this, this is interesting as well. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. <clears throat> okay, this is a terrible example, but I think what's happening here is, how do I ask this? Okay, men. Either in your days long ago before you were married, so I don't want to get you in any trouble. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes, and I've seen this happen, uh, a guy likes a girl. 
So he'll go up and, you know, sweet talk her and be really nice and smooth. And then as soon as he kind of senses, ooh, she's, she's got it, just ignores her. Why Guys do that. Why do they do that? Because guys think that if I do that, whoa, she's interested and intrigued in me, but now I'm not paying attention to her. That's going to draw her to want to pursue me and know more about me. Now, guys are idiots. We are. But... <laughs> That's how a lot of guys sometimes do things. They think, I, of course, I've never done that. But <laughs> I think that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's like, look, these people are seeking you, but not in a good way. They're trying to shut you out, close the door. Why? So that you'll, hey, open. I want to get back in. You know, it's manipulation. You know, these people are doing all this stuff. Whereas Paul, by contrast... He's just been honest with them. It's like, here's the gospel. Here's the truth. You know, he's not trying to manipulate them. He's just preaching the true gospel to them. So I, I kind of think that's what's going on here with this. Um, I found that amusing anyways, but being a guy. Uh, verse 18, Paul says, But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. And then verse 19 my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish you to be present, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So again in verse 19, that tender, <clears throat> sweet heart that Paul has for these people, my children. And then he says, again, I'm in labor until Christ is formed in you, now, again, to get an idea of Paul's frustration, ladies who have children, imagine having to say, wow, I'm in labor with this child again. What in the world? That'd be terrible. My point is that would be awful. <laughs> but Paul's saying, look, I'm in labor with you again. You know, he's like, I, in a sense, you know, spiritually birthed you when, when I came and preached the gospel. Now I'm having to do it again because you're... Just, oh, what are you doing? Turning away from Christ. Here we go again, starting all over. Painful process. Paul says, but I wish I could be with you now and change my tone. Probably saying, I wish I could be with you in person now and I wouldn't have to be this harsh. You know. Uh, and so again, Paul's wonderful heart towards these people. So let's finish up chapter four. Uh, these last 11 verses here. And it's an incredible, very uh, interesting allegory that Paul makes here, uh, what he does uh, here in this part of the book of Galatians in verses 21 through 31. And again, what Paul will do here, and I love that he does this, is these people who are coming around trying to promote law keeping and, and make these Galatian Christians you know, mix in, you know, Jewish custom and ritual to be more righteous. Again, Paul kind of goes straight for the throat and he just goes right back to Torah, right back to Father Abraham to prove them wrong. I love that he does that. Uh, and so, okay, let's go. Verses 21, or verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? So guys, you want to put yourself under this? Have you read the law? Do you know what it says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, that's Ishmael and Isaac, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. 
But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. So real quick, what Paul's saying here is Ishmael is the son born by who Paul calls the bondwoman, Hagar. She was the servant in the house. Uh, She was Sarah's handmaiden. And so Ishmael, her son, was born according to the flesh. Uh, If you guys know the story, God promises Sarah and Abraham, yeah, I know you're old, you're going to have a child. Thirteen years later, Abraham and Sarah are just done. They're tired of it. Sarah's like, hey, my Egyptian maiden Hagar, and this was a custom in the day, so it wasn't entirely shocking. Uh, Wasn't right, but anyway. Have a child with her, and the child will count as ours. You know. So Abraham says, okay. And they do that, and they have a son, Ishmael. Now, God being so faithful and so loving, he didn't give up on Abraham and Sarah. As you guys know, 12-ish years later, uh, Sarah conceives, and Abraham and Sarah have a son according to the promise of God, and that's Isaac. The son according to promise. So that's what Paul's talking about here. And then he goes on in verse 24, and he says something really interesting. Uh, This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, which would be the old covenant, Exodus 20, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So that's interesting to me because Paul, again, as you guys know, coming out of of Judaism and being a rabbi and a Pharisee and a Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul knows what he's talking about. And so Paul makes this point here that, look, Hagar and Ishmael and this whole thing, uh, obviously it was fact. It happened, of course. uh, But also Paul says it represents the old covenant, the covenant Exodus 20 given uh, by God through Moses to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And that corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now, Pete mentioned last night that this book was probably written around 55 AD or so. So at that time, uh, Jerusalem, in the way that it was, was still standing. The temple had not yet been destroyed by the Roman armies. That happened in 70 AD. So the priests were still offering sacrifices, and the old covenant system was still very much in play. So that's what Paul's referring to. So don't think of Jerusalem you know, as it is today, you know, it's like in that sense, you know, the old covenant was still very much happening in the time when Paul writes this. And he says that they're in slavery uh, with their children, slavery to what? To the law. They're under the law. Christ has come and redeemed us from under the law, but they're still practicing law, still seeking to be justified by the old covenant. Okay. Now, our Lord said something similar in the Gospel of John. If you want to turn there with me real quick, uh, John chapter 8, verse 28. And we read, read a few verses here. So Jesus said, when you lift up or crucify the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, 
we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. John 8, 36, that classic verse. So Paul says something similar here, that those practicing the old covenant under the law, they're in slavery. They're not free. Okay, and then Paul goes on, verse 26, Galatians 4, to contrast the old covenant with the new. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. That's an interesting way of saying things. Um, I think, again, what Paul's doing is he's corresponding heavenly Jerusalem with Sarah, who is the wife, representing the new covenant, and saying, Abraham is our father of, by faith, so Sarah is our mother. Sarah is his wife. So I think that's what Paul's doing there. And then Paul goes on to quote Isaiah 54, verse 1. And he says in verse 27, For it is written, quoting Isaiah, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. So Paul is saying, look, Sarah, she was barren. You know, Hagar, she had a son, both through Abraham. Sarah's barren, Hagar has a son. Sarah, rejoice, because more numerous are your children than the one who has a husband, the one who's given birth. Paul, again, is drawing this allegory here between the old and the new covenant. And so it's amazing because God has saved Jew, Gentile, all of us who are believers according to his promise to Abraham, the new covenant, the gospel. God has saved so many. I don't how many people are in heaven, you know, under the gospel, the new covenant, uh, innumerable. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. And so Paul says, rejoice, quoting the prophet Isaiah. And then moving on to the last few verses, 28 through 31, Paul says, and you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so it is now also. And so again, I think Paul here is referencing uh, the persecution that the Christians in Galatia were receiving. Uh, we know from history that persecution of the church was quite common in this day, both from uh, the Roman society, the, the Gentiles, and also from certain parts of the Jewish community as well. The church was being persecuted. And Paul's saying, the child born according to flesh, you know, in, in Paul's allegory here, representing the old covenant, persecutes the new, you know. So it is at this day. And then Paul says, but what does the scripture say in verse 30? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So what is the solution for the Galatian believers to whom Paul originally wrote this? And what is the solution for every Christian throughout church history who reads Galatians, including us this morning? It's cast out this tendency, this desire to be justified by your good works, by the keeping of the law. It has no place in the life of a Christian. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone. And so the final verse, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. In Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. We've been freed from the curse of the law. We've been made fully just and righteous in Christ. We're free. So don't become slaves again. What are you doing? Stop it. Don't do that. To close out, I just there's one quick little quote here that I want to read uh, from, again, I've mentioned him, uh, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. He, just, he said, I love this. He said, he is not righteous who does much, but he who, without work, believes much in Christ. I love that. And I think that's a great way to encapsulate uh, these two chapters we've looked at this morning and the whole book of Galatians. Thank you for tuning in to Centuries and Saints and this teaching that I gave from Galatians chapter 4. I hope this has been a blessing to you. As a reminder, be on the lookout for season 2 coming soon. And until then, for Centuries and Saints, this is Scott Matson. May God bless you. Glory's up.